In our second lesson on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues the Mount Sinai experience of the New Testament, and he teaches us to pray and how to ask, and those aren't necessarily the same thing. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson, Matthew 6 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, part 2. He taught them as one having authority. Uh, And this week's question comes from Brother Fenn Simmons. Fenn says, in your latest podcast on the Sermon on the Mount, you encouraged listeners to comment on the turn the other cheek rule. If you remember last week, we talked about how Jesus said a number of things. One is if if you're smitten, smitten on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Give them the other half of your face and let them hit you there as well. And I said, "What does anyone have an idea as to what this really means? Because Jesus can't really have meant, uh, and I apologize for the jets in the background. Uh, I'm recording this week from my office at the airport because I realized if I don't do this at work, it doesn't happen. So um, you may hear you may hear airplanes landing and taking off. But we, we talked about how the if somebody sues you in court, then then they take your coat, then give them your cloak as well. And if they compel you to walk a mile, go with them two miles. And uh, so this is this is Brother Simmons' reply to, um, do we did did he did Jesus really mean this? Because what I I characterized this teaching as a radical teaching, one that even today most Christians don't keep. So this is this is his take on it. He says, my comment is, I don't think Christ intended to apply this universally. Otherwise, school bullies would rule the playground. Had Churchill followed this rule, England would be a German-speaking country today. Christ didn't apply this when he cleansed the temple of the money changers. The Nephites didn't apply this when they drove the Gadianton robbers from their land. I think Christ was foretelling his own future at his trial where he was mocked, scourged, beaten, and finally placed on the cross, and he silently endured it all. Are we asked to give our lives? No. But there are many times when we can apply this rule. For example, I have told my children and grandchildren if they are bullied at school, church, or elsewhere to fight back. If a bully is stood up to, they will back down. Then my advice to my children is to go to the bully in private and offer friendship, hope, and love. Usually that is what they're looking for but don't have the right tools. By offering them friendship in a private way, they save face and learn a new tool. After World War II, the Allied nations gathered together to help Germany rebuild. Hate was turned to love. I think that is the key. Christ is telling us to look on their soul. They aren't any different. They accepted the plan of salvation and are here under different circumstances. Given a chance, we can love them and share the light of Christ with them. Uh, thank you, Brother Simmons. We, we really appreciate you answering this question. And uh, if you should care to opine on anything we bring up in today's lesson, email me at gt at And again, we appreciate your five-star reviews on Facebook and on iTunes. They help drive more traffic our way and get more people listening. So, and, and just to respond to that last answer, I would, I would say I agree with everything you said, and it's still, there's still more in what Jesus taught that, that we just don't do, right? Maybe he didn't intend to apply it universally, that when we get smitten on one cheek, we turn the other cheek and let him hit us again, because he said, don't resist evil, he said, if somebody, even if they sue you, he gave the impression that if they sue you in court and take away 
something from you, you should give them something even more, right? Somebody takes away something unrighteously from you, or they force you to walk a mile, walk with them too. Uh, this is a teaching, the, the reason I wanted to bring it up is it's a teaching of Jesus we just don't discuss that much. And I personally have to admit, I don't understand it completely. I think this is about as good as an understanding as we can get, because obviously we had to resist evil in World War II and other times and in the scriptures. God didn't always say, don't resist evil. And so there's something going on here that I think is worth pondering, and I think is worth pondering often. And uh, we'll actually, in today's lesson, the reason I spent some time on this is, in today's lesson, we have uh, some more radical teachings from Jesus that we have to apply our brains to, to to kind of understand. But the first thing I wanted to do is to, this is going to be a little bit of review, a little bit of new stuff. I wanted to give the context for the, in case you you missed last week's lesson or you're just forgetting, um, real quickly, I'm going to go through the context for the Sermon on the Mount and discuss why it's so important. So first of all, in the book of Exodus, Moses brings the, the children of Israel into the middle of the Sinai desert, and he says, um, you know, wait here, I'm going to go up on Mount Sinai, and, and God gives Moses this commandment. He says, Moses, uh, tell the children of Israel this, I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. I, I freed you from Egypt, and now you're going to be a peculiar treasure to me. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. This is in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You're going to be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So priests, what priests do is they represent the people to God. So the priests of Israel were the only ones allowed to go into the temple. They represented the people of Israel to God. And what God is saying I want is I want the entire nation of Israel to represent the rest of the world to me, just like the priests represent this nation to me. So what God was saying was, you have to be my representatives. You're the representatives of the Gentiles. And uh, a little bit later on in the verse, the people accepted it. In verse 8, um, the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. This is Exodus 19. What follows in Exodus 20, 21, 22? The commandments. The Ten Commandments are Exodus 20. So Immediately after this, God gives all of the commandments of the law of Moses, and the people had already said, whatever God requires of us, we will do. This is the covenant that defines the Old Testament. And so the word testament means covenant, and when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about the Old Covenant. This is it right here in Exodus chapter 19. Okay, so a couple of things to remember. Number one is God said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, your, your works are going to show everyone else what it's like when there's a nation of people obeying my laws. So you're going to obey these Ten Commandments among the, and among the many others that I'm going to give you, and everyone's going to see what it's like for a nation to be so blessed that it'll be like the city of Enoch when they obey the law of Yahweh. What happened? Israel failed to keep the covenant. Now let's look, if we, if we flash forward to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking about um, this, this the idea that they are supposed to be an example to the Gentiles. And he says, uh, you are called to be the light of the world. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. In verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the, the idea of Israel was the same idea that Jesus is giving 
the people listening to him, his disciples, during the Sermon on the Mount. You're a light on a hill. And that perfectly describes what God is calling Israel to do in uh, Exodus chapter 19. And what does light do? Light allows people to see their way clearly and to make decisions. The other thing that the Israelites were called to be was the salt of the earth. And this is really interesting because salt is a purifying agent. You know, if you've ever eaten ham, although the Jews wouldn't have eaten ham, uh, nowadays we, we preserve pork and ham with, with salt. And uh, when, when the salt is given enough time to sink into the meat and permeate the meat, then it prevents the meat from going bad as quickly. And uh, in the time of the, the pioneers, for example, they would have salted meat to cross the plains. Otherwise, they, the meat would never have, without refrigeration, the meat would never have kept. And so if the salt has impurities that have somehow infused the salt, then that salt isn't good anymore. It, w- it will no longer accomplish its purpose of purifying and keeping the meat or the food that it is meant to, to preserve. And so then it has to be cast out and trodden underfoot. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that uh, this, is a, this is a type of what happened to Israel. They were cast out when they were taken away captive to Assyria and to Persia. And they were trodden underfoot of men, meaning they were conquered and subjugated. And as, as God prophesied many times in the Old Testament, they were made a hiss and a byword. The, the way the Jews were treated was used as a, a cautionary tale. Uh, and it was, a, it was a lesson, it was an object lesson to the rest of the world. They were a light on a hill, and then they were, this is what happens to a light on the hill when they reject the words of God. And that perfectly describes what, he, what Jesus says here will happen to the salt when it's no good anymore. And the, in Jeremiah uh, chapter, that, this really comes down to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is such a powerful verse for understanding the New Testament. This is probably the most explicit place in all the Old Testament where God presages what will happen in Jesus's time, and especially in Jesus's mortal ministry. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, understand, he's talking now about Exodus 19, which my covenant they break. He gives us a little progress report. Yeah, they've broken the covenant now. This is no longer in force. They had a lot of blessings promised to them, but now they're like the salt that has to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. And if you remember, Jeremiah was the the final prophet of Jerusalem before it was destroyed and before they were carried away captive by the Babylonians. So he says, uh, which my covenant they break, Although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. In other words, I was their God, they were my people. This, this bridegroom imagery is very commonly used for that. So verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, the, uh, sorry, verse 33. This shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their inward parts, which means their mind, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he says it again. Uh, I will put my law, I'm going to, I'm going to, my law is going to be in your mind and my Torah is going to be in your hearts. And we don't quite understand what that means, but we just, we kind of believe that God's going to do a better job of getting Israel to keep the commandments. In verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, it says, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So the point here is that there's no more need for teaching about God. Everyone knows God. And then he gives the reason. He says, here's the reason they're all going to know me, and here's the reason that they're going to have it written on their hearts, is that I'm going to forgive their sins. So that there's, this, there's this very important word here, for. They shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. It means that we're all going to remember God, we're going to know him because he forgives us. So a very important lesson we learn there. And it's only reinforced by Ezekiel chapter 36, when Ezekiel says, I'm going to take this, this stony heart out of your chest. And a stony heart is something that is obstinate, that, that we just can't, we won't change our mind, we won't humble ourselves before God. And God presages the time in uh, verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. This is in the day when he gathers Israel again into the promised land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Remember, Ezekiel is already in Babylonian exile and Persian exile. So once the, spr- the clean, wa- and cl- clean water is what a priest sprinkles on people that he's ritually purifying to enter the temple, but they're away from the temple. So he's prophesying what will happen when they return to the land where the temple is. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness. Again, he's forgiving their sins. And from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So very similar to what Jeremiah is prophesying, there's going to come a day when, when for some reason Israel is better at keeping the commandments, at, at having this covenant be kept, and it's going to be because of something to do with the heart. Now, remember, when Moses came down from the mountain with these Ten Commandments, what he had were two tablets of stone. And Jesus, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? He says, you, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what are the scribes and the Pharisees most concerned about? The things that are written on these tablets of stone. So it's not just a, an interesting uh, description of what our heart's going to be like. It's not just a metaphor for what our heart is going to be like. It's an actual analogy of, this is an allegory of our hearts. If we're, if we're stuck in the Old Testament, our hearts are stone because they're applied and they're, and they're resting on the Ten Commandments that are carved on tablets of stone. But, but if our hearts are fleshy, then that means that the, the law dwells within us and we can keep our, our hearts where they belong in our chest and God will go there instead of us having to focus on something outside. We'll take him inside of us and let him write his law in our mind, in our inward parts, and in our hearts. So how does he do it? How does God accomplish this work? Well, th- this is what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. How does God accomplish the work of writing these things in our hearts? And a pretty good uh, introduction to it is what happens in the rest of chapter 5. He says, you've heard it said of olden time, this, in other words, this is the law of Moses, but I say this, here's how it, here's how it is reflected when you actually take it into your heart. So if you're doing the outward ordinance, yes, you, you wouldn't kill, but if you're doing, the, if you're doing something that, has, that begins in the heart, then you would recognize that, that when you're angry with someone, you've committed murder already in your heart. So God describes, Jesus describes in the 
uh, Sermon on the Mount, he describes what happens in the heart first, how we keep the commandments in the heart. And that's chapter 5. That's what we talked about last week. Um, and it's worth, it's worth discovering Hebrews chapter 8 because that's an extended quote. We went over Jeremiah chapter 31. Well, I'm not the only person to recognize that, that Jeremiah chapter 31 is, is quite special in the Old Testament. Paul also quoted this to the Hebrews, and he was proving to them that there was a need for a Savior like Jesus. And, and the scripture that he chose to use was Jeremiah 31. And he said, look, there's, if, if the Old Testament was complete, then we shouldn't have needed a New Testament. But God is, Jesus is our God, and he represents us to the Father. He walks into the temple, and the temple is heaven. He goes from earth to heaven the way that, the, that a high priest would go from the altar into the Holy of Holies. And so the, if you remember on the Day of Atonement, what the high priest would do is he'd take the blood of the lamb and he would go in and he would just sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. And that was symbol, symbolic purification of the entire nation of Israel. And so he's saying Jesus is the high priest, he's the temple, and he's the lamb. He's all three of those things. That's a an amazing chapter, and you can read the chapter surrounding it as well. But uh, so start in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and then you'll see an extended quote of Jeremiah 31. Uh, that's a very, very profitable chapter to read. So Jesus arrives at the Sermon on the Mount, and this is, this is kind of the context, and he sets this up by talking about the light and the salt, and he talks about the righteousness of the Pharisees, but we can, we can get that this is the Sinai of the New Testament. This is uh, an analogous event to when Yahweh says to Moses, I'm going to be their God, they're going to be my people, they're going to be a peculiar treasure unto me, because... Um, Number one, he talks about the righteousness of the, of the Pharisees, right? The stony heart versus the fleshy heart. Number two, Jesus explains, like, like we talked about, the way that the law of Moses has to be obeyed internally on the heart and not just externally. So the first thing he says is, I'm, I'm here to proclaim the kingdom. And uh, then he talks about how you can put this law in your hearts. And finally... Uh, the, uh, the light and the salt, as we mentioned. So these, th- these three things taken together tell us that G- it was entirely Jesus' intention that we would understand the, the Sermon on the Mount as the, the renewal of something totally new. So Jesus' kingdom is exactly like the kingdom of Israel. That's what, that's what God was calling Israel. He said, you're a kingdom of priests. And when Jesus gets to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're actually a kingdom of the meek and the downtrodden and the poor in heart and, and those people who just can't fit in. You're, the, you're, the, you're a kingdom of, of outcasts. And all of these beatitudes, Jesus are, are basically painting a picture of Jesus and saying, here's your king. The, in much the same way that Yahweh of the Old Testament was called a king in the Song of the Sea when when the Israelites were first ascending out of the Red Sea, they sang a God, they sang a song to God and called him their king. And, and uh, so in much the same way, Jesus is he's prophesying himself as the king of God's of the kingdom of heaven by describing what kind of person is blessed, and they all end up describing Jesus. So here we are in chapter six now. Jesus has just t- told us how to write this law in our hearts. But if you remember from, from Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, 
the the whole key to the entire thing was how's how is God gonna gonna make sure that we all know him and that we have this written on our hearts? Well, the fact is that none of us will need to teach about about God because we all know God for he will forgive us. But he hasn't talked about forgiveness yet. So we get to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is fascinating. Uh, first of all, it is not the way we pray. It might surprise you to think that you don't pray this way, but as we talk about it, you're going to realize, oh, there, there are a number of conceptual things that the Lord, Lord's Prayer accomplishes that I don't actually do. So obviously, um, we're taught, you know, our Heavenly Father. So we, we begin our prayers with the name of God, and that's how the Lord's Prayer begins. But then the first thing we say is, we thank Thee. And then we say, we ask Thee. And then we close in the name of Jesus Christ. But what does, what does Jesus teach us to do when we pray? It's, it's very interesting. First of all, uh, we open in the name of the Father, and it's important that we know who we're praying to, um, that we acknowledge God is above all. He's in heaven, right? This was, this was not a uh, trivial question. Nowadays, uh, ethical monotheism has basically taken over Western society. In fact, it, def- it has defined Western civilization until, until the last couple of decades. But at Jesus' time, that was anything but uh, an, an assumed fact that people were monotheists. And so that may have been part of the reason why he's saying we begin our prayer with the, in the name of the Father. But he, and it's also significant that Jesus doesn't, instead of saying God or giving a name to God, instead of saying we pray to Yahweh, for example, which he doesn't do, he says our Father and when Jesus uses the name Father, it's in contrast to himself, even though we know that Jesus is the, is the Lord, is the God of the Old Testament. When he talks about the Father, he's talking about someone else. And he refers to himself most often. The title that Jesus self-applies the, the highest number of times in the New Testament is Son of Man. Son of Man is an Old Testament phrase meaning son of uh, Adam meaning somebody in the figure of a mortal man, somebody who appears like a, like a mortal man. And specifically, it's an illusion. If you've heard us talk about this before, you'll remember to Daniel chapter 7, this vision that Daniel had of all of the governments of the earth and the beasts that represent them trampling and destroying. And the Son of Man, or somebody who's, who appears like a mortal man, will come and be trampled and destroyed and then rise up and all power will be given into his hand and all judgment. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, it's, it's a very obvious, to, to his listeners, it's an obvious reference to Daniel 7. And it, it, was, it would hardly be more clear to say, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to defy the governments of this world, suffer and die, and then rule over them. The, the vision of Daniel in chapter 7 could not be more clear, and Jesus choosing that as his title could not be more clear, a way of presaging his own fate. So that's what he means when he says the Father. He's saying, I'm different from the Father. He's the Father, therefore, who am I? I'm the Son, and which Son? I'm the Son of Man. So it, as Jesus begins the prayer, he's already telling us about his divine mission on earth. But then but then come these two parts to the prayer. So there are three there are three little lines. This is a poem, by, by the way. We talked about the nature of Hebrew poetry, and Jesus um, 
there's actually still some controversy about this. Most people, if you've, if you've studied the Bible at all, you've heard, you've learned that Jesus spoke Aramaic throughout his life uh, in most of his teachings. And then if he was speaking to someone that traveling internationally or perhaps in certain circumstances, he would speak Greek. And then in synagogue or other places, he would speak Hebrew. But I've, I've read some articles. I'm actually, myself, I'm convinced that Jesus spoke Hebrew almost all of the time. Um, just because of some things that I've read lately. Uh, not that this is super important, but this, the, the Lord's Prayer actually fits very well the, the pattern of Hebrew poetry. And he would have been speaking Hebrew, I believe, during this, during this sermon. And so here's this poem. Jesus is giving us a poem almost so that we can remember. It's like roses are red, violets are blue. We can remember how a prayer is supposed to go. Uh, these, these were probably mostly non-literate people, and therefore for Jesus to give them a prayer that they could remember, a poem that they could memorize and recite, gave them a pattern for what prayer should be like. And if you look at it, it's, it's very parallel, parallelized, meaning it uses the repetition and the, about the same length of lines and the same number of lines. So there are three parts, there are two parts of it with three lines each, and uh, we'll talk about what those are. So the first three all have to do with God. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what are the, what's the great commandment of the law? He splits that into two, and he says, the, the great commandment of the law is this, and the second commandment is like unto it, love God and love your neighbor. So love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he tells us whom to love and how to love them. And these are the two people we have to love. We have to love God, and we have to love our neighbor. And Jesus three times tells us how to love God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he talks about the name of God, the kingdom of God, which we've discussed at length, and the will of God. Now, how often do we say to God, and I think this is pretty, pretty common in a, in a prayer for recovery, or for blessings we're not sure whether we should ask for, we say, okay, God, give me this blessing according to thy will. But we're usually asking for the blessing and not for God's will to be done. Jesus explicitly asks solely for the will of God to be done. Thy will be done on earth. Now, what, what Jesus is saying is he's, he's contrasting what happens in heaven with what happened on earth. And again, when Jesus began the prayer, he was saying, he was presaging, I'm going to be the Savior and what, what kind of savior am I going to be? When, when, when Jesus says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jews would have been reminded that earth actually looked like this at one point. The will of God was being accomplished in the time of Adam and Eve. And men fell away from that kind of existence. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to redeem you from the fall. My death, m- the fact that I'm the son of man, I'm going to be trampled, and I'm going to be... Re- raised up and sit in judgment over these kingdoms of the world. When I take over, then I'm going to redeem you from the fall. Um, and that's, so that's the same thing when, when God's kingdom comes. In other words, when uh, God takes over. Now, is the kingdom already here? Have you received Jesus in your heart? The answer is yes. You've, the kingdom is here. Um, and, and this is more than just, you know, in the, in the, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we talk often about the kingdom of God on the earth is this church. 
And the kingdom of heaven is the is the organization that God has includes the church and it also includes angels and it includes it's it basically describes the the organization that God will have the the movement that God will have when he comes again. But I believe Jesus is talking about a much broader interpretation of the word kingdom as he describes this here. He's talking about everybody who's willing to join in this in this way of looking at the world where instead of the Pharisees and scribes, because they've studied the most Talmud, they're the ones that everybody looks up to. And instead of that, we, we start seeing things the way Jesus sees it, which is the meek shall inherit the earth. Whoso would be greatest is the servant of all. And it's what we've called, and I didn't make this up, it's what is called often the upside-down kingdom of Christ. So he's talking about if you're willing to see the world this way and follow me and, and write the law on your hearts, then you're part of the kingdom. And he doesn't say it explicitly. And in fact, if, unless, you, unless you already knew what was going to happen to Jesus, you would never know. But he's also saying, I'm your king. It's only when you see the death of Jesus and you see the way he talked about who is in charge that you understand that Jesus is the king. And who was the king, uh, the kingdom of the kingdom of priests and holy nation? It was Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so Christ is setting himself up to be the king of God's kingdom without, without forcing everyone to accept that truth at this particular point. So, hallowed be thy name. The name of God has to be kept separate. Hallowed means something that is treated differently from every other word, every other name. We use, we use the name of God as a, as a path to salvation. We call upon the name of God in order to save us. And then the kingdom should come. So this, this kingdom is in the process, right? It's not completely come, but it, it's also the process has begun. This is happening in the world, but it's also happening inside each of us. So it's almost like um, we can watch a little, if, if you're watching a, a video on YouTube, you see a progress bar going across the bottom, you know how far across you've gone. And we're somewhere in the middle of that, both in our own personal hearts, in our own personal progress, and in the, in the time frame or in the amount of change that is required between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The, the kingdom is on its way. It's coming. It's part of it's here, and part of it has yet to come. And we don't know exactly how long it will take. But when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're saying, let the kingdom come onto earth, and the will of God be done there, and, and let the kingdom come into my heart, and the will of God be done there. So this is a this lets us know, okay, the, the Lord's prayer is not just a prayer for us to pray to God. You don't find this anywhere else in the scriptures. The Lord's Prayer is duplicated in the Book of Mormon. But other than that, you don't find the idea that God gives us a prayer. It's, it's almost like the fact that he's asking us to do this, he's not praying to man, but he is asking us, which is a way of saying, I, you know, I pray you do this. It's, this is a prayer of God to man. In other words, here's, here's how I'd really like you to act. Please pray this way. So all over in the scriptures, and especially in the book of Psalms, but in other places we read prayers of God, of man to God. Here is a prayer of God to man, and here's what we're asked to do. 
God would really like us to ask him to bring his kingdom. Now, he doesn't need us to ask him to bring his kingdom in order for him to do it. So why should we have to ask? It's because when we're asking that his will is done on earth, we're also asking that his will is done in our hearts. So Jesus has set up the entire chapter 5 to be us writing the law in our hearts. Jesus is teaching the way where this law that was written only in tablets of stone, it was written on a stony heart. He was teaching us how to write that on our fleshy heart. And he was actually, the people that receive the Sermon on the Mount, he was actually writing it in their hearts. And people who read it later, he's writing it on our hearts. If we accept these teachings, we've written the law on our hearts. And now he's saying, I've written the law on your hearts. You have to you have to pray that my will will be done in your heart. This is kind of like sealing the deal. And the next three lines now, uh, so those three correspond with the first commandment, which is to love God. When we love God, these are the things that we want and we pray for. We're actually praying, God, here's something just for you. I'm not praying for anything for me. I'm not thanking you and I'm not asking you anything. I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm not asking for help. I'm not asking, and I'm not saying thank you for something you've already done. I am praying for the things that you want. And, and isn't that interesting? It's almost like I remember a, an old, and maybe this is politically incorrect to mention because of what's happened with Bill Cosby, but I remember an old episode of The Cosby Show when that show was popular. And Father's Day's coming, and uh, the dad says, you know, I don't want a tie from anybody, you know, here's what I want for Father's Day. And the whole episode is about how everybody has to go to their imagination and actually do a little bit of work and think about what dad might want for Father's Day instead of just doing something that's easy for them. And so I'm reminded of that episode when I, when I think of this part of the Lord's Prayer, which is we, we have to think about what God wants. What if, if this were Father's Day, if this were God's, the Father's birthday, what would he want? Here, here's the answer. This is God's prayer to man. These are the things that I want for my birthday. I want, I want my name to be hallowed, treated separately, and kept holy. I, wanted my, I want my kingdom to come, both to the earth and to your heart, and I want my will to be done, because I happen to know what's best. I happen to know that my will is the thing that is, is keeping you all from the horrible fate you would, have, you would have suffered were it not for my plan. So my will is the thing that's separating salvation from damnation. And when you pray for that will to be done, you're choosing all the blessings that I have. So that's what God wants for his birthday. This is the thing that we pray at the beginning. We love God when we make this, this half of the prayer. The second half is three things that have to do with us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. So first of all, daily bread is obviously... So what, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's the, the Sinai experience of the New Testament. And what image from the Sinai experience does the word bread summon up, and especially daily bread? This is an obvious allusion to the phenomenon of manna. And manna was a gift, a free gift that would come every day to the Israelites. They would walk out of their tents and they would be able to gather food from the ground and eat without any work other than to just pick it up and lift it to their mouth. And so what Jesus is saying is we, we should have that same level of dependence on God. So here's my question for this week. And, uh, and in, the, in the chapter here, we have this same charge by Jesus. He says in the middle of this, uh, this particular uh, lesson, the scriptures for this lesson, he says, uh, 
take no thought for your your body, what you're going to eat. Take no thought for your clothing, what you're going to put on, because God knows you have need of these things. And look, look at the the lilies of the field. Solomon didn't even look as glorious as they do. Look at the the birds of the sky. God is aware when one of them drops, but they don't have to worry about food from one day to the next. So you be like them. So this is kind of another radical teaching of Jesus, which is don't take any thought for what you have to do uh, for the future. Now, there are, there are some very strong arguments against, against this kind of mindset. For example, you could interpret this to mean don't save any money for the future. Don't be wise about your finances. And it's the person who is the, is the most spendthrift and the most impulsive that is actually following this advice the best, right? That's obviously not what Jesus means. However, it, you could be forgiven for thinking that because you're reading this and you're, and you're thinking, wait a minute, he seems to be saying, I don't have to plan anything. Now, obviously, there's a context here. He's saying when you're traveling around, perhaps when you're, when you're preaching itinerantly, then you don't have to worry because I'll take care of you. But keep in mind, at the beginning of the, at, of the Sermon on the Mount, it says Jesus was te- teaching his disciples, but this isn't the 12 yet. Jesus is teaching these hundreds, we can presume hundreds of people, it's a huge crowd of people who are called his disciples. Disciples just means people who are receiving his teachings, and they have followed him. We can assume this is including a couple of hundred men and a couple of hundred women at least. And they've followed him to the wilderness place, and they're all listening to him. So this is not a small group that he's, he's called and set apart as teachers and sent them out on a mission, which is often what I hear, you know, as a way to explain this. He's saying to them, take no thought. And he's talking to a crowd of people that are not going to go on missions. They're going to they're go back to their lives. So there is some interpretation of this that makes sense for us in our daily lives that I think is just like turn the other cheek and just like walk, walk with him twain and just like give him thy cloak also. Uh, it's, a, it's a teaching that's really tough for us to apply. And it's, it's a, I, I guess I would classify it as a millennial teaching. It's something that is very challenging and it puts Jesus right out there on the edge of what we're willing to do. Uh, so even if, even if you're doing pretty well with, controlling your thoughts from lust, for example, and keeping anger out of your thoughts, and you're not lying, you're doing a lot of the things that Jesus described in chapter 5 of putting the law in your hearts. He's still got some more challenges for us, right? There, there's still some, uh, and, and he did this really well, but we don't seem to do it so well. There's a lot of humility and faith in this that is, that is a quantum leap ahead of where we are today. I think it's worth mentioning. So that's that is just one aspect of what he's talking about when he says daily bread, but he's saying, give us today. We depend on you every day. We depend on you. And remember, when Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, he, he, his response to the temptation, why don't you turn these rocks into bread, was, we don't live by bread alone. So Jesus already knows that. He's taught this. We don't live by bread alone. However, God, if you'll give us bread instead of us having to go believe that we somehow create the, the increase that happens in this world, right? If, if we go out and this comes to us through our labor, then we're, we're tempted to think that somehow we did it. But, but Jesus is saying, take no thought for the life of the body. 
but but now he's saying, give us this day our daily bread. So what we have to do is we have to recognize that every blessing we receive comes from God. When we ask for it and then it comes, we have to recognize that was an answer to our prayer. You know, when I read this, I think about the times, and, and maybe you've had a similar experience where you're, you're running out the door, you're late for something, and you can't find your car keys or you can't find your wallet, and you stop after five minutes of looking for it or something, you realize, okay, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say a prayer. God, please help me find my car keys. And then you think, oh, you know what? It's never mind God. It's in my sock drawer or wherever it is. And so then you go, you go and you see the keys there and you pick them up and you leave. And the thing you were praying for, you think, oh, I didn't really need God's help. I found my keys on my own. So I'm, you know, I'm going to, I didn't want to trouble my father in heaven for something as simple as keys. It's, it's a fundamental lack of understanding of how prayer works to think that way. And, and so let me, let me explain what I mean. When we pray to God to help us find our keys, God sets forces in motion. He's happy to help us find our keys, as we'll discover when we talk about ask and you shall receive. But we're actually praying for two things. We want to, we want to both find our keys and we want something else, which we, which we hardly ever think about. God, I want you to help me find my keys, which he does, right? He, in, as soon as you pray, then it's like, oh, I remember where my keys are. He just helped you find your keys. But what we also want is, I want you to help me find my keys in a way that's so unmistakable that I cannot believe that I would have found them without you, right? We want proof positive that you exist, that you heard my prayer, and that you have interceded in my life. So not only, God, do I want you to help me find my keys, but, but I want you to take away my need for faith that you, will, that you have helped me find my keys. And I want you to answer my prayer in that way and give me a sure knowledge of what this looked like. We never say those words explicitly, but that is what we mean when we think, oh, you know what, never mind God, I found my keys on my own. And what this, what this, this plea in, this, in the Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread, it's an acknowledgement. That when we receive something that, is, that happens to us daily, these common everyday occurrences, we're, we're acknowledging that that was a gift from God. So when we, find our, when we pray to find our keys and then we find our keys, wh- why, do we su- why do we insist on believing that we did it by ourselves? Why can't we see that we, we prayed to find our keys and God used all the means that he would normally use to help us find those keys, and so we did. He inspired our minds with a memory of the last time we saw our keys and where we were and where we probably put them, and we go and look there, and there they are. And it usually happens that we find them faster after we pray. And, you know, a non-believer in God would say, well, that's that's an unprovable hypothesis, and that's exactly the point, is that God doesn't then go the extra step of giving us our answer to a prayer in such a way that we cannot possibly falsify it. It still requires faith. We have to make a choice. We have to say, give, give me this day my daily bread. Help me find my keys. Oh, God, you gave me my daily bread. And what does that mean if God gave me my daily bread? It means it's not really my daily bread. And the early Christians understood this. When they received their daily bread, I mean, they were breaking off huge chunks of their daily bread and sharing it with each other, right? They lived in a, what, what a lot of people today would describe as a communist society, but the truth is it was a lot closer to a, a United Order type of situation. They all were voluntarily sharing with each other and making sure there were no, no poor among them. This didn't last for very long. 
but it lasted an, long enough that uh, they they felt the joy of what it meant in as it's described in Fourth Nephi to everyone be partakers of the heavenly gift. Okay, second secondly, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I just think it's interesting that now we've now we've gotten to the point, right? In Jeremiah thirty one, he says, "I'm going to write. They're going to they're going to know me." Because I'm going to forgive their sins. And this is the first time Jesus mentions forgiveness, which is, uh, I, I, you will forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Now, that word as can mean at the same time as we forgive our debtor, debtors. So I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to find my keys as I look for them. Or it can be in the same way. Like, I'm going to cook you dinner as you cooked me dinner last night, Right? That word as can be interpreted in either of those ways. So when we forgive our neighbor, when we forgive our debtor, then God will forgive us. Or in the same way that we forget, forgive our debtors, will God forgive us? So in other words, we, we know God because he forgives us. And now we understand. Jesus is making the point here. If you, if you know your Jeremiah when you're hearing the... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, then, then the point will come clear to you that he's saying, you will know God to the extent that you forgive. Isn't that interesting? Because, and why is that? It's because that is the thing that God is, is most interested in doing. That is the reason J- Jesus came to earth. He goes around forgiving sins. And we'll talk, and, and so the the Sermon on the Mount is actually not just a bunch of different teachings that don't have to do with each other. Every point that's going to be made after this ties back into this idea that God is here to forgive our sins and that we, the, the things that we do to get in the way of that process, he wants us to cut it out. And so here he's talking about how we can enable that to happen is we, we're going to forgive our sins. Remember, he already talked about if, you're, if you have a, an offering you're bringing to the to the altar, and you remember you have something, your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, go settle it with your brother. In other words, be reconciled. You forgive him or he forgives you, then you come back. And then you can make your offering to God. And this is a very similar idea. Finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So remember that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And then he was, he was led into the Garden of Gethsemane. Both times when Jesus was tested, this, this is the, the same word as tempting, right? He was tested, he was tried. His metal was proved. Then he was led to do it. And what did Jesus want? What did Jesus pray for in that moment? Specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, God, if thou wilt, let this cup pass from me. In other words, lead me not into this trial. And, and he's making a very difficult point. He's saying it's okay for us to pray to be freed from temptation. Then finally, what did Jesus say? He said, nevertheless, if thou wilt, not my will, but thine be done, and help me out with this. So lead me not into temptation. Help me to escape these trials that are coming, but if, if they must come, then deliver me from evil. And so the way this is rendered makes us think, oh, God, why do we need to pray for God not to lead us into temptation? And that's not really the point. We don't have to pray for that. What we pray is, God, 
help me escape those trials that are coming. But the ones that I can't escape, I want you to be with me. I want you to deliver me. And that is one of the names of God from the Old Testament is the deliverer. And if you remember the, that Israel is quite often in, in Isaiah referred to as the prey for an animal. There's going to be a young lion and none can deliver. And then God will come when none can deliver. You know, God will deliver us from the captive. And, and Jesus began his ministry saying this way, saying delivery of, from prison and recovery of sight to the blind and the acceptable year of the Lord. So Jesus was naming himself the deliverer. So we're praying that we can escape the trials of life until we come across those trials that are absolutely necessary for our progression. And then in those moments we pray, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done and deliver us, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. So let these trials come out in our favor. Let us pass the test when we can't escape the test. And it is okay to say, God, this test is so hard, I don't want to do it. And just as Jesus did. Jesus showed us that example, in fact, that, that he wanted to not have to go through the test. And so it was okay for him to, to pray to get out of it, but also it was very important that he subjugated his will to the will of the Father. So very powerful set of two groups of three different pleas unto the Father. And this is God's prayer to man. Here's what, here's what God wants us to ask for. So when, when we ask God, do you, do you remember the, if you remember the, uh, the parable of the, the two debtors, right? When Jesus goes into the home of Simon the Pharisee and, and this woman comes and is bathing his feet with her tears and Simon says, uh, Simon says, ha ha, when, when Simon says, you know, don't you know, or, or he says within himself, you know, if, if he was really a prophet, he'd know this, is a, this woman's a sinner. We get the impression the woman is uh, maybe a sex worker or definitely sexually immoral. And Simon knows this, and he's totally frowning on it. He can't believe Jesus is letting her touch him at all. And Jesus knows his thoughts, and he turns to him and says, look, I'm going to tell you a little parable here. There's, there's a rich man uh, who who forgives two people. One of them owes more money. One of them owes less money. And then later on, Jesus teaches about um, the great king who has a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. And then that servant has somebody who owes him 100 pence or 50 pence. And the great Lord forgives the, his servant, but that man goes to his debtor and won't forgive the small debt. The point is that the, great, the greater debtor the greater debt is between us and God, and the small debt is between us and each other. We actually owe the largest debt to God. And so when, when w- what we want is for God to forgive this great debt as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive these small debts that happen to exist between people. Because when we hurt people, when we help people, we're only in the service of our God. When we hurt people, we're mostly hurting God. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to pay the price for that ultimately. So that's what we're asking. We're saying, uh, when when we forgive, we're not saying I don't want I don't want consequences to come across this person. For example, if uh, you know some of the most dramatic examples of forgiveness come, I remember the story that President Hinckley shared in conference about these Amish people. They'd had a murderer come in their midst and kill children, and almost immediately they were forgiving the man. Now, a Matt. 
maybe don't imagine it, but just kind of imagine the situation that, uh, that someone in your family was murdered. And you, for you to forgive the murderer wouldn't, I don't think, in my opinion, it would not mean you didn't want that murderer to go to jail. And maybe it was a capital crime. You, forgiveness of the murderer might not mean that you wanted the murderer to escape capital punishment. It might mean that you did, but it might also mean that you didn't. What it really means is that you take no desire in for, for evil to come across upon someone. So as we talked about, that, I want that person to get what's coming to him. The desire to have somebody else get what's coming to them is going to... Jesus is saying, this is what's going to come back on you. Because if they get what's coming to them, then this is a... The, the atonement is an atonement that where mercy doesn't come into it. And therefore, you also can't benefit from the mercy of the atonement. You've just defined the atonement as something that doesn't actually get you out of, get you into a place of mercy. So maybe consequences come up upon people who harm us, but we should take no pleasure in the idea that they suffer for their sins. We should be sad for them that they have chosen poorly. And we should mourn with them that have done us wrong because they suffer for their sins. I think that's a very appropriate attitude to have. And I think that's one of the meanings of forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's not necessarily I want people to escape the consequences. It could be that I want them to escape paying the uttermost farthing, as Jesus said, that, you know, there might be room for mercy even in the earthly consequences for this person, but certainly in the heavenly consequences. We don't want them to have to suffer all the pains of their own sin. We want, we want the atonement to cover the people that have harmed us the way we want the atonement to cover us. And finally, when we say to God, deliver us from the evil one, we're, we're saying, I've embarked on this test. I'm letting the Spirit lead me into the wilderness or into the garden, and I expect that there will be opposition. And so deliver me from that opposition. This test is going to be difficult for me, and I know that there is an evil force that wants me to fail. And when we pray to God, deliver us from evil, we're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering my power. My, I, I'm acknowledging that I'm powerless against this opposition, this evil one. And God, I need your help. Deliver me from this evil one. So let me escape the evil as long as I can, the trial. But if when I'm in the middle of it, then deliver me from the evil one. That's the Lord's Prayer. And you notice the second three, that's us loving our neighbor when we pray for these things. Now, how are we loving our neighbor? Do you notice Jesus doesn't say, give me this day my, my daily bread? Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors? It's all us and we and our Forgive us our debts. So we're praying for ourselves in the same way that we're praying for our neighbors. There is no separation between us and others in the Lord's Prayer, right? This is how Jesus would have us feel about each other, that when we pray, when we rise, we rise together. It's very significant in my mind that Jesus never says me and my, and says always us and our. A couple more passages. The rest of, them, the rest of these two chapters kind of fall in line with, with what we're going to talk about. But one of them is, judge not lest ye be judged, right? 
For with that same judgment you meet, it shall be meted to you again. So it shall be measured to you. <clears throat> there is a, uh, a wonderful scripture in the book of James, chapter 4, uh, verse 11. And in, in the King James Version, it has, Speak not evil one of another. But in some translations, it's slander. Don't slander each other. The word slander is used. We're, we're asked not to judge other people. Now, is this, again, this is, this is a scripture with multiple interpretations. Is Jesus saying, Jesus is going to say just a little bit later that we should not cast our pearls before swine. He's going to tell us not to, uh, not to give what is precious to the dogs, right? And this is a, this is a determination we can only make. We, we, we shouldn't give our spiritual things unto those who won't appreciate them. We can only make that determination by using our judgment. And so it, what Jesus wants is for us not, not for us to turn our judgment off, but kind of what's going on in this, this verse in James, which is, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be judged. So in a court of law, my, my father, I grew up with a dad who was a lawyer, and when I was a really little kid, he was a district attorney. And I remember him talking about a particular case where a wife killed her husband, and she shot him with a gun. And they, um, you know, she tried to claim, she, she wanted to get off with a lighter sentence, claiming um, I was afraid, and I shot him out of self-defense and fear. And, uh, the, you know, my dad um, recounted the story that uh, she had emptied two loads of the gun. It was a revolver. And she emptied the gun into him, and then she reloaded the gun, and then she shot him again. And the fact that she took time to reload the gun meant that, number one, she was safe enough to do it, and number two, she had a cool enough mind and calm enough mind to, to recognize that she wanted to keep shooting. And that was how they, they, they discovered her intent. And I, I, that's kind of a grisly story, but the point is, a lot of times in a court of law, the judgments that they have to make have, have a lot to do with our motivations and our intent. And I think that's, this is what was Jesus was getting at, was um, there, there are legal ways where we can get at what the intent is. This, this idea of reloading a gun is one of them. But, um, for example, if somebody flees the police then that can be taken as evidence that they know that they're guilty, and if the police catch them, they're going to jail. Whereas if they see the police come in and they say, hi, you know, you're the police, hey, I don't have anything to fear from you, and then the police arrest them, they're like, wait, what are you doing? Then that's evidence of innocence, right? It's, it's not necessarily enough evidence, but it, it points in the direction of, is it evidence or guilt, how you react when the police show up? And that's evidence of your intent, um, and so, for example, um, you know, your dog may attack somebody and you can act, you can react with surprise or you can react with uh, horror and guilt. You can try to hide evidence. And this is, this is uh, evidence that you knew that your dog was already a vicious dog. And that, in that case, it's your fault. If you didn't know that, then it's not as, you don't have as much guilt. And in our legal system, we're often involved in trying to discover the intent, and that's what judgment is all about. And what Jesus is saying is not, you, not don't use your judgment. As you go out in the world, um, you know, there was an interesting 
study done a few years ago, and this has been years now, so I don't, I imagine it's much, much worse now, but they, they pulled a bunch of high school kids and they said, can you say definitively that Hitler uh, was wrong, that he did something wrong when he perpetrated the Holocaust? And it was so fascinating that a lot of these high school kids, they, they didn't have the moral compass to say, um, yes, he was wrong. They were like, well, you know, I would never do that, but I can't say one person. So this was kind of an extreme example where we had, we had learned, it was this learned behavior that we could never pass judgment on another, right? So we've taken this idea of, of Jesus saying, judge not, and it's become a positive virtue now in today's world that we would never pass judgment on the actions of another person no matter what. And I guarantee you that what Jesus had in mind when he said, judge not lest ye be judged, was not, uh, you know, Hitler, I can't say, you know, did he do something wrong or did he not? You know, I wouldn't do it, but I can't say whether he was right or wrong to do it. Jesus didn't mean that at all. What Jesus meant, and, and this is my opinion, and I'd be willing to hear from you on this, what Jesus meant was, we shouldn't make assumptions about each other's motives when that motive is not clear. And that's a lot of times what we do. We want people to take us, we, they, we, we want them to see our actions in the best possible light. And so, in other words, they're not going to judge us. They're going to assume, they're going to give us the benefit of every doubt. And yet, when we see what other people do, we think, oh, and especially when it affects us, we think that person meant to hurt me. We think that person was out to get me, they were trying to slight me, they were trying to exclude me, that guy cutting me off, he saw me here and he wanted to make me mad. It wasn't just that he was in a hurry and he didn't care about me, it was, oh yeah, that guy, he saw me back there and, you know, he wanted to get ahead of me and he did this, it's all about me. So we generally like to ascribe motives to other people. And when, and this is what Jesus is saying, is number one, don't, don't make assumptions about what's going on in someone else's mind. And number two, this is, uh, this is where this scripture in James chapter 4 comes in. This is, this is verse 11. Then don't slander each other about it. So don't make your assumptions, and then also don't spread them around. So he that speaketh evil of his brother, James says, and judgeth, judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law. So when you take judgment out of the hands of the law and take it upon yourself, you're actually, you're, you're making that same statement about the process of judgment itself. And uh, as I've heard it said, the, the, uh, what, generally what we're doing is we're imagining that we know exactly what was going on in that person's mind and where they're coming from. And we see ourselves kind of on the righteous side of, of the question. And we're standing next to Jesus and Jesus is standing next to us and we're looking at this person and we're saying, yeah, you agree with me, right? Like he's, he's in the wrong and I'm in the right. We, we figure that we know the right of the situation and God is on our side. And that's not the way that God works. Jesus is telling us that when we do that, then that same kind of judgment will be applied against us. If we're willing to assume the worst about somebody else and tell stories to ourselves about their motives, then that's the way we're going to be treated. That's the kind of judgment we're going to receive. How many of us could, ever, could, could possibly stand 
to receive that kind of judgment from God. What we want from God is for him to look into our hearts and see, oh, I can see your intent. You know, you were, you were misguided in your attempts to do the right thing, and you really screwed up, but you, you meant well. Now, is that enough? You know, sometimes that's, um, that's hardly enough. I mean, especially in, let's say, public policy. Meaning well is not enough. You have to also be, uh, you have to have the, the competence to, to get the job done to help, to actually help people instead of just meaning well and hurting them. But in, your pers- but in our personal lives, it's a little different. You know, we, can, we don't have thousands of years to learn all of the things that work well on interpersonal relationships. We're learning these things as we go. And so sometimes when we make mistakes, it's easy for other people to assume the worst about our motives. And Jesus is saying, that's not okay. If I do that to you, then I can expect that God will one day judge me on that same standard. And he will let somebody else assume what my motives are from how it looks. And that's how I'll be judged. What a terrible fate that would be. What a, what a powerful motivation that is to not engage in judgment of other people. But it also doesn't mean we can't look at their actions and say, those, those actions are very harmful. Those actions cause quite a lot of damage to a lot of people. And this is the difference between, uh, you know, be, have, being able to say, well, I, you know, I don't know what was in that person's heart. But I can say that Hitler did a terrible thing, an evil thing, when he began the Holocaust. If you ever have a problem, if you ever know anyone who has a problem saying that, then they've, they've obviously, whether it's directly or indirectly, they don't know the, the original idea came from Jesus, but somebody has misinterpreted this idea that we shouldn't judge each other because we should have judgment. And, and Jesus even says later on, he talks about how we need to make judgments about what each other needs. For example, we can't cast our pearls before swine, right? We, there, are, there are important judgments that we have to make in, in the world. And the example he gives specifically is this idea of the beams and the moats. So how can you, how can you tell your, your brother, let me pull this moat out of your eye. So a little speck of wood, a little splinter, a little piece of sawdust, when you've got a telephone pole in your own eye. Um, this is such a clear example, I don't even need to talk about it for very long, except to say this. We often think, oh, so yeah, we don't worry about the moat that's in our brother's eye. We just gotta, we've got to look to our own beam and get it out of our eye. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying two things. Number one, we don't need any help from other people to get the beam out of our eye. A beam is big enough, you can reach up with two hands and you can find it in your eye and pull it out. And it, he's, it, this is an exaggeration. This is absolute hyperbole. But the point is clear. We can pull the beam out of our own eye if we just are willing to admit that it's there. It takes a lot of stubbornness to not admit that you are trying to look at somebody else's moat through a beam. And Jesus is trying to point out, it is not appropriate to, to see small flaws in someone else when, we're, when we are engaging in larger flaws ourselves. However, the second part of his admonition is this, then you can see clearly to cast the moat out of your brother's eye. It is an act of love for us to engage in judgment to help other people improve. And once we've cast this beam out, and the beam is, in my opinion, pride, when we've cast this beam away, then we can approach our brother in humility and say, you know, I've noticed 
let's say that you're a, a young men's leader and you and you go to your uh, a young man in your ward and you say, I've noticed that you are separating yourselves from the other boys, you know, and that you spend a lot of time on your phone. I think you have a problem with pornography, let's say. This is a very appropriate way to, and, and, and you know, I'm inviting you to change that habit. This is a very appropriate way to help somebody pull a moat out of their eye to say, I, I want you to be your best self. I want you to repent because I love you. Now, that would be difficult to do if you were not humble yourself, if you had even worse sins than what you're asking this, this young man to repent of. And the same thing could happen with a parent and a child, uh, a priesthood leader and someone that was coming in for an interview, or just two friends, anybody who's willing to get humble. We all need each other to help us pull these moats out of our eyes. Our eyes are full of moats. So it's not that there aren't moats that we have to... And, and, and the fact that we help somebody else pull a moat out of their eye today means that we're going to need their help. We're going to have to invite their help. We're going to have to be willing to receive their help to pull the moat out of our eyes tomorrow. So these moats are all over the place. And Jesus is saying, you need somebody, you both need to see clearly, and you need somebody who sees clearly when these moats are getting pulled out. Because we all need each other's help to pull the moats out. So two things, not just one. First, we have to get our own beam out of there. We have to get rid of this pride and the unrepented sin that is weighing us down and, and keeping us from seeing clearly. And then secondly, we have to be humble enough to receive help, and we have to be loving enough to call other people to repentance for these little things. We have to be willing to engage in uncomfortable conversations with each other when it's appropriate. As, as Joseph Smith put it, reproving betimes with sharpness. All of these things require judgment, but it requires righteous judgment. And that's part of the, the Joseph Smith translation of this verse, you know, judge not unrighteously. But even without that clarification, it's still possible to see. Jesus is inviting us to use our judgment on behalf of each other instead of against each other. Finally, Jesus narrows down, and you can, you can read the rest of the, these, these verses along these same ways, but every single one of them now, ever since he talked about the Lord's Prayer, is a way where we can either forgive each other or be forgiven by each other, or have no need of forgiving each other. Avoid the need to forgive each other in the first place. So Jesus started out by talking about the difference between the Old Testament law written on stone and the New Testament law, this is chapter 5 from last week, or the New Testament law written on our hearts. So he talked about how to write the law on our hearts. Then he talked about how we would know this is all falling in chronologically with Jeremiah chapter 31. He talked about how we would know God, which is by forgiveness. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is the ways in which we're going to forgive each other, the ways in which we're going to forgive God, have faith in God, have no need to forgive each other. And then finally he ends it with this. Well, he ends it, he ends it a couple of times, but basically the culmination, the, the most important doctrine from the from the Sermon on the Mount is, whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. This is the law and the prophets. In other words, you can sum up all of the scriptures. You can take these stony tablets and all of your stony hearts 
and you can throw them out, I can pull them out, and I can put back in just this one idea. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's not so simple of, you know, give them all the holy things that you receive, right? Because sometimes you're putting your pearls before swine. It's not just what you want that you have to give to other people. You have to look at what you would want if you were in their situation and give them that thing. We have to go one step above and see how can we really serve each other? And then we have to do it. And, and that is the entire, he's saying, all of the Hebrew scriptures, the law, the Torah, and the prophets, they can all be summed up in that one sentence. If we will just be willing to treat each other the way we would prefer to be treated. If we would adapt someone else's situation, put ourselves in their shoes, and then treat them the way we would like to be treated in that situation, then, that, then, we're, then we have this law written on our hearts. If we'd forgive each other, if we'd refuse to judge, refuse to jump to conclusions about somebody else's motives. And if we don't do this, Jesus is saying we're, we're, built, we're building on a very sandy foundation. But if we do, we're building on a rock. We're building on something that is absolutely solid and will last forever. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, in other words, that calls upon the name of God, will enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will. Just before that, Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. And I'll end with this. <clears throat> From time to time, challenging facts come up uh, for those in the, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Challenging facts come up about the, the history of the church. Let's say that you, um, you can't reconcile what you've learned about the, the history of plural marriage with what you believe today would be right. And you can't see how a church leader could have lived that law and taught that law and actually been under the influence of the Holy Ghost. And you may not know an answer to that. You, you may not know a way to answer that concern with, because it's just a tough question. How do we respond to the idea that for, for decades and over a century, there, were, there was an entire race of people that could not hold the priesthood. There are difficult questions involved in understanding uh, aspects of the gospel. And for me, one of the most powerful verses anywhere is, by their fruits you shall know them. Jesus says, can, a, can an evil tree yield good fruit or can a good tree yield evil fruit? And when I look at the fruit, so aside from how you might resolve those questions by appealing to a historical analysis or a, do a doctrinal uh, interpretation or resolution of the question, let's say that you've tried all those avenues and you're still coming up dissatisfied. For me, the most one of the most comforting verses in Scripture is, by their fruits you shall know them. When I think about the the love that the church spreads all over the world when there is a disaster and when there is poverty and want, when there is lack of education. When I think about the, the love that I feel almost, almost palpably, uh, I, I am almost imagine it like a freezer has opened and this cloud of you know, condensation comes out when I watch General Conference and I turn on the TV and I almost feel like this, this wave of visible love is pouring out like 
like cold air from the television set when one of the apostles or prophets is is looking into the screen i feel like they're looking into my eyes and 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 sending such a powerful wave of love in my direction that i cannot deny it when i think about the love that people in our in our church members of our church temple recommend holders show when they do temple work and then take those names to the temple on behalf of people that they'll never meet in this life in order that those people could have access to the same blessings that they enjoy. These are the fruits of Joseph Smith. When I feel the love that uh, from God, when I read the Book of Mormon, or when I study the text of the Book of Mormon and I recognize that, uh, that the truths that are that are presented there are presented in such an elegant and fascinating and transforming way that I feel the love of God coming from the book into my heart. These are the fruits of the modern, of the restored church of Jesus Christ, the fruits of modern prophets, the fruits of the restoration from Joseph Smith. So that's probably not the context the only context that Jesus meant, um, and it may not be one of the interpretations of the in your lesson manual, but for me that's that's the meaning of that verse is when we have doubts about the gospel and we struggle with, let's say, a local priesthood leader or um, maybe not even a leader, but just somebody in our local congregation. And then we wonder, you know, can how can this gospel be true? This is the verse that can, for me, if you're like me, this can bring you back to understanding what God, everything that God has done for us, which is, by their fruits you shall know them. These are all the fruits of the gospel, all the wonderful blessings we enjoy, the closeness with our Savior that we have through the Book of Mormon, and the, the blessings of the priesthood, the blessings of the temple, the love that the church spreads to those not of our faith. These are the fruits, and we know the founders of our church, we know the early prophets, we know the modern prophets, we know all of our leaders, we know them by their fruits. And I pray that we can be part of magnifying and spreading those fruits even farther so that by our fruits, other people can know us in the same way that we know Jesus Christ by his fruits. His fruits are everyone who has read the account of his life has been changed in some way. And many people, many people, millions of people have been changed in a profound way by his teachings, by having him write his doctrine on our hearts so that we can be forgiven and that we can obey his statutes and that we can be changed and transformed and that we can bring the kingdom bit by bit, not only over our hearts, but over the entire world so that God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven, and Jesus can redeem us from the fall. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 